Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, we're in the midst of a series entitled, I Have a Question. I have a question, and the whole purpose of this series is really to take some of the toughest questions that people ask regarding God and Christianity and do the best that we can to answer them. Really, through the goal of this series is to examine whether or not Christianity is truly, and God is truly, reliable. Every question has an answer, but not every answer can be understood on this side of eternity. As I mentioned two weeks ago, we don't understand everything that God does because God is God. And he operates on a whole different level than what we do. And so for us to be able to understand every single thing that God does, it's just not going to happen. And and I'm glad that I don't understand everything that God does because I'd probably be a whole lot more scared in life than I would be if I understood everything that God was going to do. But perhaps one of the most confusing and emotionally tough questions that we could possibly have in this life is this question of the presence of evil and suffering when there is supposedly a God that's in control and a God that's good. When I was a young boy, I was, I was probably eight years old or so. Uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. We had this young boy that was in our church, and he, I think he was about two or three years old. And he had been struggling with a brain tumor for quite some time. Barely could talk, a little older than my son, so I guess he was probably more like four. We prayed for him for about a year, that God would remove that brain tumor. And God in his sovereignty did not see fit to be able to remove that from him, and the little boy passed away. Ripped our church family apart. On February 14th of 2018, a man by the name of Nicholas Cruz decided to walk into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and he took the lives of 17 people and wounding 14 people. The Florida governor referred to that event as an act of pure evil. On September the 1st of 2019, just about a month ago, Hurricane Dorian hit landfall on the Bahamas, killing 53 people. And currently 1,000 people are still missing from that event. The question of why evil and suffering exist when there's a God that's supposedly in control is one that people have wrestled with since the dawn of time. A philosopher and apologist named Professor uh, Robert Nash said this, every philosopher believes that the most serious challenge to theism was and is and will continue to be this problem of evil. But here's, here's the thing about this question. It's not a theoretical question. It's not a, a, a theological question or a philosophical question necessarily. It's far more than that. It's a personal question. This question of why does God allow evil and suffering is personal and we feel it far more than any other question. And I know for a fact, based upon the fact that we're human beings and we live in a corrupt world, every single person in this room has gone through some sort of time where they've they've felt pure evil in their life, where they felt pain and they felt suffering in their life. And sometimes we believe And honestly, we've done this in our life. We believe that it's wrong to question God. God, why? 
why am I going through this? Why, if you're so good, God, not that we ever lose faith in God, and perhaps maybe sometimes we do lose a little bit of faith in God, but we question God, God, why, if you're so good and sovereign, why are you allowing this to happen to my son or my daughter or to me or to my father or my mother? Fill in the blank. But what's interesting to note is that all throughout the scripture, all throughout the Bible, you see godly men asking this very question. In Psalm chapter 6, verse 3, the psalmist says, My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long, how long will my soul be vexed? In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, when we see uh, the, the, the different vials and the different trumpets occurring and being opened up and being God's wrath being poured on the world, we see here in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, the martyrs, and they're questioning God. And this is what it says. It says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge? our blood on them that dwell on the earth. And the mere fact that the Bible includes these references and includes these times where men are questioning God, I believe there's two reasons for it. Number one, it's to show us that even some of the most godly people question God's goodness. Even some of the most godly, God-fearing people question why God does certain things. And I think the second reason why God includes these in his word is because God is okay with us asking him why, we, why he allows us to go through pain and suffering. Because I really do believe that that pain and that suffering is the very vehicles of grace that oftentimes God uses in order to reveal himself to us in our lives. But every single person, whether they're a Christian or not, wrestles with this question of evil and suffering. There was a national poll that was taken a few years ago, and it asked this question. If you could ask God one and only question, and you knew that he would give you the answer, what would you ask? And the most common response is, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Making logical sense as to why hurricanes and natural disasters exist when there is a God that can be defined as good and sovereign is at the heart of every single person. Evil and suffering does not match up with a God who is good and a God who is in complete control. Scottish philosopher David Hume says this, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he, is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Why then is there evil? And there's two sides to this question. Either, number one, God is all-powerful but not, but not all-good, and so therefore he cannot prevent evil or he doesn't prevent evil and suffering because he's not all-good. Or on the flip side of that, God is all-good but he's not all-powerful, so therefore he is not able to prevent evil and suffering. We understand that through doctrine, God is both those things. But the question still remains, why is there evil and suffering? And I guarantee you there's, there's been a person in this room probably multiple people in this room, where somebody that is a doubter of the faith has, has said, I don't believe in God because there's so much bad that's happening in this world. And perhaps you've seen somebody that is strong in the faith and they've asked you that question, how do we solve this dilemma? I firmly believe that that question and the, and the lack of an answer to that question is the number one reason why people walk away from the faith. The number one reason. I used to be a follower of God I used to love God, I used to serve God, but this happened in my life and I cannot cope with the fact that a good, loving, and sovereign God will allow this to happen and they walk away from the faith. Our goal this morning is to do the best that we can and the reason why I say 
to do the best we can because we not fully understand everything that God does in our life. It, it just goes far beyond our human comprehension. But nonetheless, our goal this morning is to do the best we can through Scripture to answer the question, how can God be defined as good and in control when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? To do so, we have to go back to the very beginning. So take your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, a story that we're all familiar with, but one that answers this very question of evil and suffering. <clears throat> The general tendency is to blame God for all the evil and suffering that occurs in this world. It's to say, God, you are fully responsible for everything that, bad, that, that has happened. And that goes for those that are non-Christians and sometimes those that are Christians as well. But God never created evil and suffering. In fact, that was never God's original intent in creation. We are designed by our creator to live in a world without sin. And this is why we long for beauty, we long for justice, we long for peace, because that's how God designed it to be. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, all throughout that chapter, I'll read two verses for now, it, it uses the phrase, and God saw that it was good. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 10, it says, And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and he saw that it was good. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 12, it says, And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself and after his kind, and God saw that it was good. He says that phrase again in verses 18 and 21 and 25. And then in verse 31, he encompasses everything as far as creation through this final phrase. And God saw everything. Everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, this is what we have to understand. In order for God to refer to something as being good, it cannot have any type of sin or corruption, correct? So, in essence, God created the entire world in perfection, in absolute 100% perfection. So, it was never God's original intent that this world would have sin and corruption in it. But what changed? is our question. And it was not God that caused the change, but it was man. So this morning, we're going to read just a few verses here and kind of work our way through the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. And if you could stand with me out of respect to God's word, we're going to read verses 1 down to the beginning part of verse 7 in Genesis chapter 3. And now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman... Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that was pleasant to the eyes, and a, and, a, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them that were open, and they knew that they were naked. This morning, rather than give the tendency, or put the tendency of the blame on God, we have to dive into the facts of why evil and suffering exist to begin with, as we develop an answer to this question. Thank you. You may be seated. I appreciate you standing for the word of God here this morning. We're going to look at three facts. Three facts about evil and suffering. Here's the first fact. Evil is a negative byproduct of human free will. Evil is a negative byproduct of human free will. God did not create evil and suffering. Evil and suffering is simply the absence of that which is good. 
If you think about it uh, as an illustration here, let's say, for example, um, I had Jared and Amanda, uh, they won't do this, but let's just say they turned out all the lights and we're sitting in the auditorium. Are we going to see anything? No. Why? Because all the light is gone. Darkness exists because it's the absence of light. If you were to go outside, you see light because the sun is there shining light. Darkness only exists because it's the absence of light. So when it comes to evil, somebody may ask, well, if God can create, if God created everything, did God create evil? No. Evil is just a negative byproduct of human free will. It's human free uh, will to choose to not be good. So evil exists. Evil is the result of that. We have to understand that God never created evil. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all sin. So that leads me into another question then. If God did not create evil, then why couldn't God just create us without the ability to sin, therefore eliminating evil and suffering? And that's a fair question to ask, but here's the thing that we must remember. Human free will speaks more to the goodness of God than if he was to create us without the ability to sin. Human free will uh, speaks more to the goodness of God than if he was to create us without the ability to sin. What's God's whole purpose in our creation? It's for us to have a relationship with him, but God's not going to force himself upon anyone, so he gives mankind a choice. How many of you have seen the, uh, the movie Beauty and the Beast? I mean, whether it be the newer one or the classic, everybody loves Beauty and the Beast, right? Think about that whole storyline. Originally, Belle was captured, right, and held captive by the beast inside the castle in order for her to fall in love with him because he knew that he had to be, uh, have a love so that he could break the curse. And so him forcing Belle into a relationship with him, she did not love him. She did not reciprocate that. But as his heart changed and he grew in his love towards Belle, what happened? He released her and says, you can go. And he didn't care whether or not that curse was going to be broken because he loved Belle. The more he loved Belle, the more willing he was, he, he was to give her a choice to do whatever she wanted. And what was the result of that? She reciprocated that love that he had for her. Yeah, that part, a little late on the illustration on that light bulb. But anyway, he reciprocated the love that he had for her back to him or he, uh, her back to him. And therefore, they fell in love. So when it comes to this whole relationship with God, if God forced us to be able to fall in love with him, then it's not going to mean as much than God giving us this gift of free will. The gift of free will is a beautiful thing. It gives mankind the ability to think on their own, come to their own conclusions about life. But with this beautiful gift of free will, it comes a great responsibility. Whenever man gives into their free will without the presence of God, it never ends well, which further indicates mankind's need for God. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6, and look at the progression that happened here with Eve trying to work out her own logic. And when Eve saw the tree that was good for food, she believed, and her free will caused her to believe that physical gratification was more important than spiritual satisfaction. She saw, and in her own logic, she believed that that food was good for her. And then it leads into this next step, and it says in verse 6, and that it was pleasant to the eyes. Not only did she believe that that food was good for her in physical satisfaction, she then saw that it looked good. Think about it in our life when it comes to sin, right? We First off, we believe and begin to ration in ourselves, it's okay for me to do that. You know, that's okay. And when Satan gets us to begin rationing in ourselves that sin is okay, what's he going to do next? He's going to tempt us and make us look and make sin look like it's good and make it look appealing. 
And that was what was happening with Eve here. And then it brings us into our third point here, this third progression. She desired it to make one wise. So now what was happening is that she was fooled into thinking that she could live her life without God. She had a desire to be wise, and she no longer needed God. I've heard preachers in the past put all the blame on Eve. Obviously, Eve was the first one that gave into that. But here's the difference here. The Bible says that Eve was deceived. Adam knowingly and willingly disobeyed. According to the scriptures here, it seems to indicate that Adam's standing with her the entire time. She takes that fruit, she hands it over to her husband. What was he doing? He obviously wasn't being the type of husband that he should have been. They were both, they were both, Eve was deceived, but Adam gave in to that sin. And it was because of that choice to sin and disobey God that the presence of evil, pain, and suffering came into existence. J.P. Phillips says this, evil is inherent in the risky gift of free will. God could have made us machines, but to do so would have robbed us of our precious freedom of choice, and we would have ceased to be human. Exercise of free choice in the direction of evil is what we call the fall of man, is the basic reason for evil and suffering in the world. It is man's responsibility, not God's. He could stop it, but in so doing would destroy us all. It is worth noting that the whole point of real Christianity lies not in the interference of human power to choose, but in producing a willing consent to choose good rather than evil. Evil is the byproduct of human free will, but the gift of free will speaks more to the goodness and love of God than if God was to force mankind to have a relationship with him. Which leads us into our second point here this morning. Suffering is a consequence of evil. Suffering is a consequence of evil. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. Look at verse 11. Their choice was to sin. In verse 11 it says, And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? The moment they chose to disobey God, they became aware of their evil and of their sin. As I mentioned earlier, they were created in perfection. The moment they chose to disobey God, they became aware of evil and sin. The rules of logic tells us that for every choice, there's a set of consequences. If I was to climb a 25-foot ladder and jump off the top, the consequence of me doing so is possibly spraining my ankle or breaking it. It's a consequence. Everything has a consequence. If we were to disobey our mom and dad as a child, the consequence is we are punished for that disobedience. If I never show up to work, the consequence of that is, guess what? I'm not working for that company anymore. Every choice has a consequence, and so it is with this choice to disobey, and God lays it out in verses 14 through 19. First off, you see the consequence of a corrupted creation. In verse 14, it says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Animals eating and attacking each other is a consequence of sin. Hurricanes, tornadoes, and natural disasters killing and taking the lives of many people is a consequence of sin. The disharmony between man and animal and creation is a consequence of sin. Then the second thing that he lays out is this consequence of physical pain in the labor process. In verse 16, it says, And unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. You know what's interesting to note is that uh, human beings are the only ones that have a long labor process and are in that much pain. No other animal 
No other creation has that type of thing. Uh, matter of fact, they did a study several years ago at the University of New Mexico, and they discovered that out of 2,500 full-time births, labor lasted on average almost nine hours for first-time mothers, human beings speaking. In comparison, apes and monkeys generally give birth within two hours. What's the difference there? It was a curse upon the lady, not upon animals. So the very fact that, that a woman goes through that process and the labor is a result of a consequence of sin, which leads us into our third part here, and that's the consequence of marital strife. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but for those that are married, has there ever been a point where you disagree with each other? If you haven't, I'm going to have you come up and preach from now on because you obviously have it all figured out because I don't. The consequence of marital strife. Look at verse 16 at the last part of it. He says to the woman, thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. She has turned, or sin, sorry, not she. she uh, sin has turned the harmonious system of God-ordained roles into a dis this tasteful struggle of self-will. When it says here, the woman's desire will be uh, over to, or to thy husband and he shall rule over thee, what it's talking about here is that a woman will have a natural desire to lord over or to reign over her husband, which goes against God's design for marriage found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25. Now, sometimes a woman comes across as being strong because to be honest with you, the husband isn't doing anything. And so that's a whole different issue there. But a lot of the marriage strife that happens within the marriage when a husband's trying to follow through with God and do the things that are God and, and the woman uh, really kind of bucks on that, it all goes back to this curse. A woman's desire will be to her husband. In other words, she will have a desire to rule over her husband, but obviously that bucks the very creation of what God designed for marriage. And so marital strife is a part of the consequence of sin. Then it goes on to say here, number four, a consequence of sin is hard labor. Again, not labor, but hard labor. In verses 17 through 18, it says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thomas also and uh, thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Now, I'm going to say something that could be interpreted as being controversial, and I don't mean it to. So let me go ahead and be the first one to say this. I do, I do not believe that it is wrong for a woman to work. My wife works. My wife takes care, of, um, uh, takes care of the home, but she also works as a nurse. So for a woman to go out and, and, and go into the professional world, I do not believe that there is anything wrong with that. But if that role is reversed where the woman is the breadwinner and the husband who is perfectly healthy and able to work does not do so because they don't want to because the wife is taking it, I believe that that is a reversal of what God has truly called for the family. Because if you look at it here, when it comes to this hard labor, who is he directing it towards? The man. He didn't say anything to Eve about it. So again... I do not believe that there's anything wrong with a woman working in the professional world, but this hard labor aspect was directed from God to man, to Adam. And so when it comes to, when it comes to working, and it's, it's not, again, we were created to work. We were created to appreciate things. We have a lot of gardeners in here that love to be able to go out and garden. My wife, I, she's got like a magical ability where she can make a dead, and I think Alina's the same way. They can make like a, a flower that's almost dead, and if you have any questions, you can just talk to a man about it. She knows everything about them. To like come back alive. It's like this like power that they have. 
And so that's good. They enjoy doing so. But when it comes to thorns and it comes to thistles and distress, when it comes to work, that's all part of the curse is a consequence of that sin. And it leads us here into the final consequence that he lays out. And that's the consequence of physical and spiritual death. Look at verse 19. It says, In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return into the ground. For out of it well was taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. All sickness and pain and physical suffering, which results in eventual physical death, is a consequence of evil. But again, it is important to remember that God never causes evil and suffering to occur. He allows it to happen, but that was not part of God's original intent. Somebody may ask you the question, well, I thought that God could do anything. I thought that God could accomplish anything, and he absolutely can. But God will do anything that aligns with who he is as God. And so God will not do something that he does not seem to be, that, that he does not deem to be the best. And so when somebody says, well, if God can do anything, can God sin? That's, that's a terrible question to be able to ask because it, it goes against the very nature and character of God. It's like saying uh, to a boat, boat, can you fly? Well, absolutely, it, it cannot fly because that's not the character or nature of a boat. It's like saying to, to the water, can this water catch on fire? No, that's not their natural design or the chemical parts of water to be able to catch on fire. So when it comes to God and God being evil and him causing suffering, that goes against the very character of God. That's not who God is. And so it was important to be able, for us to be able to remember that But it leads us into a next question. Why doesn't God just fix our problem then of evil and and, and completely eradicate it? Man made a mistake. Why can't God just come in then and just fix it? He will fix it. But it's not time for him to do so yet. Why don't you think about it this way? There will be a time when God will remove sin from this world and cast Satan to the lake of fire. He will spend forever and eternity. But we are currently in the the age of grace. But how does this presence of evil equal a time of grace? If God were to stomp out evil today, he would do a complete job. Meaning, God would have to completely wipe out mankind. Going back to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. But let's say that God just said, you know what, I'm not going to wipe out mankind, I'm just going to take away this presence of evil. If he was to do that, then he would have to take away man's free will. Man would no longer have a choice to reject or accept God. So really the question then is, is it really the most loving thing for God to do to eradicate evil and suffering at this present moment? It may feel like that in the situation that we are in, but if you were to think about it in the whole scope of eternity, if God was to remove evil, then he would have to remove the free will of man, therefore forcing everybody to have a relationship with him, which means that he's really not being as loving and as good as he truly is. Which brings us to our final point here this morning. Evil and suffering lead to God's grace. Evil and suffering lead to God's grace. Somebody in the church here this week sent me a a link, and you can look it up online. Um, There is a play going on um, at UNC, I believe, on the life of C.S. Lewis. And it's, it's phenomenal the fact that, the, I think it's at UNC, it's phenomenal the fact that UNC is doing this. But C.S. Lewis was a staunch atheist. 
He wanted nothing to do with God. And then we know that as God continued to work in his heart, he became a believer. But this is the quote that he says here that helped him become a believer. He says, when I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how did I get to this idea of just and unjust? Was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have been just giving up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not just simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. If we say that the existence of evil and suffering is proof that God does not exist, then we take God out of the picture. Our problem becomes even bigger. When we look at the innocent death of a person, there is something inside of us that tells us this isn't right. And this goes all the way back to God's original plan for creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 was to not have death and sin and corruption. We were created to live in a world without sin and death. And so instilled in all of our hearts is that desire and that understanding of what things should be, and that proves a further exist, that further proves that there is an existence of a God. Because if that wasn't the case, then where would this whole moral law, this thought of how things should be, rest upon? There are three ways that evil and suffering point to God's grace. Number one, evil and suffering makes man aware of his need for the Savior. I love this verse, and it just stood out to me here recently, a couple of years ago, when my son was actually reading a little kid's Bible. They used this verse, and they, they, they made me think about it in a way I've never thought about it before. Look at verse 21. After God lays out all the consequences of sin, Adam and Eve obviously knew they were naked, and so what they do, they went and got fig leaves, they sewed them together, and they covered themselves. But look at verse 21. It says, Unto Adam also to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins, and he clothed them. Adam and Eve were aware of their sin. They knew that they were broken and that they were naked before God, and what did God do? He met that need. But here's something to remember. Something innocent had to die in order to meet the need of Adam and Eve. That animal had to die in order for that animal's skin to provide as a covering for Adam and Eve, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. The evil and suffering that we experience is really just a way for man to be aware of their need for the Savior. The ultimate answer to the problem of evil at the personal level is found in the sacrificial death of Christ. God knows that every man has a need for a Savior, and a life without the Savior would only lead to the ultimate consequence of sin. So God allows evil and suffering to draw mankind to himself by making mankind aware of his need for a Savior. Second thing is that evil and suffering prepares man to serve the Savior. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book entitled, um, I want to make sure I get the title right, I did not write it down, but he wrote a book, and basically he did a study from the University of uh, London on those that were uh, entrepreneurs and those that were successful businessmen that struggled with this, uh, uh, this problem of being dyslexic. And he called it the advantage of disadvantage, and this is what he says out of that study. There are two possible interpretations for this fact. One is that the remarkable group of people triumphed in spite of their disability. They are so smart and so creative that nothing, not even a lifetime of struggle with reading, could stop them. The second more intriguing possibility is that they succeeded in part because of their disorder, that they learned something in their struggle that proved to be of an enormous advantage. 
With taking this example and applying it to our spiritual context, God will allow pain and suffering to come into our lives to prepare us for his service by pushing us into a further dependence upon him. God will allow pain and suffering to come into our lives to prepare us for service in him by pushing us towards a further dependence upon him. What happens when life is all peaches and cream? We kind of forget to pray to God, right? We forget to thank him for everything. But the moment life hits us upside the head, what do we do? God, I need you. So really allowing evil and suffering to come into our life by helping us remember that we do need a God is actually more of an act of love than protecting us from all evil and suffering. Because God knows that our deepest need is him in his work, in his love, and in his grace. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10, Peter says this, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a little while, while make you perfect or mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So what he's saying here is that it is necessary for you to suffer a little while in order for you to be more mature in your Christian faith. So evil and suffering prepares man to serve the Savior. At first, it seems a little harsh, but here's what's awesome about God. That's one of the things that separates him from any other religion and any other God. God feels, he empathizes with our pain and suffering. He feels it. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, it says, For in him himself hath suffered being tempted. He is able to secure them that are tempted. In other words, to comfort them. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as like we are, but yet without sin. He feels our suffering and our pain. And here's the important point to remember. God's ultimate priority for our lives is not our comfort, but our holiness. God's ultimate priority for our lives is not our comfort, but our holiness. And there are times in our life where the dross must be melted away as it is when that gold is put through that intense fire in order to purify us. And in doing so, we have to go through trials. We have to go through hardships in order to purify us so that we come through that fire even stronger than we were before. The final point that I want to bring before our attention here this evening is number three. Evil and suffering brings man home to the Savior. And as I was studying this, something stood out to me in verses 22 through 24 that I had never thought about before. Look at that in Genesis chapter 3. It says, And the Lord God said, Behold, man is become as one of us to know good and evil. He's, the us is in reference to the Trinity. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out man, and he placed him at the east of the garden of Eden, cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. What is this verse talking about here? Not only is death a consequence of sin, but I want you to think about it this way. God is actually using death as one of the biggest vehicles of his grace for us. He says here, in this conversation he's having with the Trinity, now man understands the difference between right and wrong. Now man lives in a world of sin and corruption. If he was to eat of this tree of life, then what would happen? He would live forever here on earth. God in essence was saying, I don't want man to live forever here on earth in the midst of sin, evil, and corruption. I want him to die physically, 
so that he could spend forever with me in eternity. So therefore, God is basically saying, I am removing man from this sin-cursed world, a thing that God did not have to do. And so God in his grace, using this very vehicle of grace through death, is ushering in this life and forever bliss with him so that we don't have to suffer forever here on earth until he comes back the second time. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As I conclude here this morning, many of you have either read these books or you've seen the, the movies here. But in this, there's a scene in the Two Towers in, which, uh, in the Lord of the Rings series in which Samwise Ganshi is trying to convince Frodo to keep pressing on to Mount Doom. Despite all of the pain and suffering they had been through and seen, Samwise Ganshi, uh, Ganshi states this to Frodo. He says, the only ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass, a new day will come, and when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clear. Evil and suffering is a consequence of mankind's choice to reject God, not a direct act of God. But yet God uses evil and suffering to further reveal the glorious life that only he has to offer. I want to conclude with this verse. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Perhaps, just perhaps, the evil and suffering that this world brings is the very vehicle of grace that God uses to draw mankind to himself.